Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Writer Gary Ferguson's books include Land on Fire, the new reality of wildfire in the West. We're going to talk with him about wildfires burning now in the West. We'll also talk this hour about his latest book, The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. Over the past uh, 25 years, Gary Ferguson has traveled thousands of miles down rivers, trails, and back roads of North America, trekking 500 miles through the Yellowstone to write Walking Down the Wild. Wandering through seasons, the first uh, 14 wolves released into the Yellowstone National Park for Yellowstone Wolves the first year, and spending a season in the field at a wilderness therapy program for the best-selling Shouting at the Sky. Other books include The Carry Home. And uh, you can find him at wildwords.net. Gary Ferguson, uh, welcome back to the program. Tom, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. We appreciate you taking some time. Um, and you, I don't know, you might have more time with the pandemic. You're probably not touring with the book. <laughs> yes, uh, touche, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how are things going there in, in Montana with uh, with everything, I guess, well, including the pandemic? we're... <clears throat> We're happily uh, uh, quite uh, free of smoke for the most part. As of the last couple of days, we had some snow come, uh, snow come to the high country and rain to the low country on Saturday and clear the air out a bit, which was quite bad. But uh, I must say, compared to our, our friends uh, on the West Coast in Oregon, California, and Washington, it was, it was just uh, nothing uh, compared to that. But nonetheless, uh, dangerous enough for people with uh, lung and health conditions that they really had to stay inside. So uh, there's just no escaping these these big fires. It seems I, I heard that the smoke was now in the western edge of Europe. So uh, wow, it really casts a big shadow. Yeah. Well, I, uh, that dwarfs my anecdote. I was uh, I saw a picture uh, from from a uh, a post in Wisconsin, but uh, well, it's reached Europe. You're saying. Yes, I mean I don't know to what degree. Perhaps it isn't uh, is, is threatening, you know, by the time it travels that far. But it is rather staggering to imagine enough smoke being created to uh, travel uh, that far around the around the globe. And um, it's, um, it's 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 a very sobering year for so many reasons, Tom. Uh, between COVID and wildfires, uh, I think people are are just generally waking up, kind of knocked off balance. Uh, this I pulled up this headline from CNN: Wildfires, coronavirus, and an earthquake collided for California's terrible week. Uh, so oh, it's just you can't catch oh. a break. Yeah. Uh, so these are, I mean, these are being described as megafires. I, uh, that's that's an apt description, right? Yeah, and megafires um, is a term that's typically applied to fires that are over a hundred thousand acres and. That's a, a size of fire that, you know, used to happen now and then, but actually be quite rare. But, uh, in fact, now megafires are, are happening, um, quite often. In fact, from 2000, we've had 13, uh, seasons, fire seasons with well over a dozen megafires around the West. And, and that's really unheard of compared to what was going on in the, say, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So that, that has increased. And the, and the trouble with megafires, Tom, is that um, they really can't be controlled uh, very well by conventional firefighting techniques. You have to just sort of do what you can and, and often get out of the way. It often uh, burns, a megafire will burn at a temperature that can sterilize the soil, so it's a long time until vegetation comes back. And it can also sometimes actually vaporize the plants and put on the soil this kind of what's called hydrophobic substance. It's almost like silicon that um, keeps water uh, from sinking into the soil. So that's why you get so many landslides and debris slides and mudslides um, after omega fires because the, the water that may fall a month or two later just simply can't percolate into the soil anymore. So a quote-unquote regular wildfire, you know, d- d- does have some positive effects, right? But, but uh, you're, you're saying you get to megafire, and uh, and I don't know if those positive effects uh, disappear, but but you have some very deleterious effects. Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned the positive effects because you're absolutely right. You know, especially in the interior west where we don't we don't have a lot of moisture, we don't have the microorganisms in the soil that they do in the Pacific Northwest or the uh, the Northeast, other parts of the country. So the only way the minerals and nutrients from trees and plants, what scientists call the biomass, get put back into the soil to create new communities of life is through fire. 
So fire is absolutely uh, critical to the health of an ecosystem, which brings us to um, an important point. Back in 1910 uh, through about 1975, we took the position um, as far as fires, fire management that wildfire was bad. All wildfire was bad, and the goal in the 1920s was to put, by the Forest Service, was to put every fire out by 10 o'clock the next morning. Well, that's uh, ridiculous. Nobody's going to be able to do that anyway, but it, it suggests that we didn't make enough room for healthy fires to burn when they could and should. And so today we're sitting on almost 300 million acres that have um, inordinate fuel loads, heavy fuel loads from those decisions that we made over those decades. And that's a, that's a landmass three times the size of California. So uh, it's it's a real problem. And, uh, you know, uh, it's tragic in, in, in the fact that I think at least 30 people have died, right? Uh, California, Oregon, yeah. Washington. Yeah. Uh, homes wiped out. Uh, did whole communities wiped out. Absolutely. And, you know, this is where we come up against a, a choice point as well. We do need to actively launch more prescriptive burning. In other words, this is intentional burning to remove those heavy fuel loads that I was talking about earlier. But it's a fairly expensive process, and um, the money is just not there. It's not there in the state, and it's not there with the Forest Service. And, yes, it's expensive to do that, but it's also extremely expensive to fight these fires uh, that we keep getting. Uh, and then it's tragically expensive, as you suggest, with the loss of people's homes, with the loss of people's lives, and just the health care costs from the, from the smoke uh, on uh, elderly people and people with compromised immune systems is, is really quite profound. So we're, we're going to have to you know, dig in and pay one way or another, and we, we really need to decide which way we want, we're going to go. Um, I, I think... Some of this comes, but it, it, it's kind of delicate to talk about this with a loss of life and loss of communities. But uh, you know, people continue are moving into areas that are that are fire prone, right? Moving in more kind of into the forest. Yeah, you're right. That that so-called what the fire teams call the wilderness uh, wildland urban interface, WUI, WUI wildland urban interface, and that's what it refers to is when people build homes that are close to uh, burnable natural vegetation. And yeah, that that has exploded over the last uh, 30 or 40 years, and it really does suggest some difficult decisions. Um, do we identify super high fire-prone areas, which we certainly have the ability to do, and say, okay, nobody can build here, or we have to impose these particular rather rigid uh, specifications on how you build. That strikes at the good old libertarian heart of most Westerners, but on the other hand, without doing that, we're going to continue to have a string of tragedies. You know, and if you look out in California, say in the Chaparral country, where so many of these super-hot fires burn, um, you can't really use prescribed burning in Chaparral because six months later, eight months later, you're back in the same place you were before. So that isn't an option for treating the land in Chaparral country. The only real reasonable option is to limit what kind of development can happen in those fire-prone places. And these are going to be fire-prone, Tom, for a long, long, long time to come. This is, this is sort of the beginning of the wildfire era, not, not by any means the end. Well, what if you expand on that? It's a depressing thought. <laughs> um, this is the beginning of, of these megafires and not the end, you say. Well, I do. And, yeah, it can be depressing. It, 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 it certainly is. There's no doubt about it. We have to, I think, walk through a little bit of a grief period in, in realizing that. But it can also, um, you know, help us decide we're going to show up we're going to start to uh, play to the strengths of our community, to the strengths of a common vision and, 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 and shared uh, uh, qualities and, 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 and things that we really do depend on one another for and start making the decisions about how to, how to deal with this. That could include um, funneling more funds and uh, labor for prescriptive burns, uh, certainly uh, they, doing those developmental decisions, those hard decisions we talked about. So all of this is very messy, and it requires a lot of people with different viewpoints sitting at the table to come out on the other side better off. But but that's that's a kind of maturity, 
And the earth itself is on so many levels right now calling us to some greater level of maturity. We're, we're up to it. We, we've got everything we need to, to pull it off. We just sort of have to calm down and get out of our own way at this point. Mm. So prescriptive burns, uh, part of the solution, you say, there's pushback on that. I, I know uh, here in Utah, you hear, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who uh, who accept that and, 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 and see it as a positive solution. But, uh, uh, you know, people are nervous, especially if you're going to do a prescriptive burn somewhat near their summer home or whatever. Yes, and, and, and I think that there's, you know, I, that's very understandable. There have been uh, some, some tragic accidents with prescriptive burns, although, to be honest, as many uh, tens of thousands as there have been, there have been relatively few tragedies. But also sometimes people don't really want to spend uh, a month breathing the smoke that's being um, emanated from uh, uh, prescriptive burns. So I understand that. But it, it's sort of, you know, choose one or, or, or choose the other. If we don't do the prescriptive burns, then the chance of real devastating wildfire and megafire goes up dramatically. Now, you'll also hear in the discussions today a lot about, well, we just need to do more harvesting, more timber harvesting. And, you know, granted, timber harvesting does have a role to play in this. But keep in mind that in so many areas, timber harvesting isn't an option because the terrain is so rugged and so steep, or the kinds of trees that grow there, like lodgepole pine, aren't really of much interest to, to the timber industry. So short of super expensive road building into those areas or helicopter logging, that's not really an option. The other thing I would say to keep in mind is that if we start pushing really large clear cuts, the most fire-prone forest there is is the single-age stand, mono forest, and that's what comes in the wake of most clear cuts. So 40 years or so, 30 years or so after uh, clear cut has gone through and, uh, and the area has been replanted, you get an even-age stand, which under certain uh, conditions, say with pine bark beetle infestations, and they love even-age stands too. So the pine bark beetles come in, kill the entire stand, the stand's dead, and that makes it tinder for wildfire. So, you know, the, these things are not quite as um, easy as they might seem on the surface. So, yeah, let's do some harvesting, but let's do it very thoughtfully. Uh, where does climate change fit in here? Is climate change a big driver of uh, the fact that we have the, the megafires? Yeah, you know, it, it really is. It truly is. In fact, I would say there, there, there are three factors we're looking at the the uh, suppression of wildfires I mentioned throughout most of the 20th century, uh, and then and then climate change is is a big factor as well. And then what you brought up before with the wildland urban interface, the development next to these uh, highly uh, fire prone areas, it's thought right now. And you know these these models that I bring up now and then aren't foolproof by any means, but it's it's quite a- astonishing how accurate. The climate models have been since about 2000. If anything, they've underestimated what's going on, but they've gotten very, very refined and very good. And so right now, most climate modelers are suggesting that since about 1980, climate change has basically at least doubled the amount of acres burning in the West every year. So that's a significant factor that we need to contend with. And so that's the other other thing we have to show up willing to deal with is it, this isn't just about the forests burning. The forests are burning in significant part because of climate change factors, and we need to start addressing climate change in a very serious way. It, it's, not a, it's not a philosophy. It's, a, it's an ecological fact of, of, of what's going on. We're, we're in the midst of it now. We don't have to worry about it showing up for our children and grandchildren, um, and we, we get to escape it. Uh, it. It's happening right now, and the fires burning in California and Oregon and Washington right now are great evidence of that. If, as you say, the, this is the beginning of the megafire, is not the end, um, how do we live with this? It, I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the smoke alone, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with it uh, as far uh, uh, away as Europe, uh, and it, you know, it must be just horrible in California, Oregon, and, and Washington. How do we, how do we better live with the, these? Yeah, that's a, a great question, and there is no easy way to live because these fires are going to continue to burn. 
I, we do need to significantly address the prescribed burning aspect and the and the um, selective thinning process to reduce the fuel loads. I mean, we and that's going to take money. It's just going to take state and a lot of federal money, and that's not um, ever a popular truth to face, but it, it, it really is. Secondly, we're going to have to, I think, make sure that the people who are living in these fire-prone areas are creating, and California is doing a fairly good job of this, creating what's called fire-safe communities. And that means that the houses are built a certain uh, distance apart so that there isn't chain ignition when one house goes up, all the rest of them go up. It means clearing borders around the house, uh, making sure that uh, within uh, 15 feet of the house there are no uh, flammable materials, um, on and on and on. There are some very simple, basic things. And to give you an idea of how effective that is, there, there were uh, fires a number of years ago in Colorado, uh, near Colorado Springs, and in one community that had... Um, not paid any attention to fire safe practices, they lost 62 out of 67 houses in a neighboring community called Cathedral Pines where they took the fire mediation very seriously and created a fire safe community. They lost three houses. And so the, the difference is profound. So we need to start doing that. And those aren't particularly expensive, but they do require a little bit of guidance for a homeowner to be able to establish a fire safe home. Um, that's certainly something we need to do. And then we're going to have to be ready, I think, with a health care system that can help people who are really traumatized by these, these high levels of, of smoke. And not just smoke. You know, it's interesting when fires burn, a lot of times they, um, they can release pollutants, especially when structures are involved, uh, very damaging uh, pollutants. And even old-growth trees tend to hold things like uh, mercury and lead and arsenic and things like that in their tissues, and those are released into the water and air in fires as well. So we're going to have to have a healthcare system that can handle it. And I know all this sounds extremely daunting, but the first step is really just stop and start talking to each other, acknowledge where we are, and then make sure we have good leaders who can help you know, guide us through the process necessary to be as intelligent as we possibly can. We can't live with our heads in the sand anymore. I mean, we, we, we've done that and gotten away with it, and it's been blissful. But um, those days those days are gone. I wonder if you talk a little bit about the, the firefighting efforts, because you need a lot of resources needed. And my understanding is that those, uh, as you can understand this, uh, uh, firefighting resources are pretty tapped right now. Yeah, they, they really are. Um, here in Montana, for instance, we had a fire uh, breakout outside of uh, where Mary and I live in Bozeman uh, a couple weeks ago, and it took some time to get the resources necessary as far as uh, tanker slurry bombers uh, to drop a fire retardant on the fire because they were, as you suggest, all tapped out. They um, All of the resources in this region and through California come from uh, the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho, and and they really had nothing left. So that's another uh, important consideration to ask is how do we start making um, regular allegiances and alliances with other countries, which we've done this year, and Canada and Australia and other countries have been sending um, people in to help fight the fires on the West Coast. Um, we need to strengthen those kinds of alliances um, because otherwise, if we're going to do it all ourselves, we're going to have to start, you know, uh, crafting a, a lot more helicopters and planes and, um, you know, very expensive equipment. So this is an opportunity to sort of build the firefighting community from players around the world so that when these kinds of summers happen, we can, uh, you know, we can access those those helpers. By the way, uh, you, you must have interest in, I don't know if you've looked into the fires in Australia, that megafires there seem to be becoming, be becoming more more usual. They're heading into, uh, you know, t toward their summer. Yes, they certainly are. In fact, you know, it's not by accident that Australia is considered to have the um, most capable firefighting forces in the world because they've had so much experience. And, and that's a good example, um, I would suggest, of climate change. They've been able to do some very significant monitoring of, monitoring of climate change in Australia. 
and it lays out very, very well on the explosion of big, big mega fires in in the country. And so they're um, they're going to be dealing with this issue as is the American West for for some time to come. You know, they they do have fires burning in areas uh, a lot of times that aren't populated, but there's no question. Sometimes they have the same danger to uh, life and limb that that we have over here. Um, I think this is another great example of a country that has a lot to teach us and share with us as far as their own experiences, because in some ways they're a little more ahead of uh, the curve than we are. And so we need to open up those lines of communication. And I think the fire uh, professional firefighting community is doing that, but it's, it's just essential that those conversations take place. What are, what are some of the things they're doing well or maybe better than we are that we can learn from them? Well, they're doing a lot with uh, satellite imaging uh, to predict um, hot spots. In, uh, in other words, taking thermal satellite images, and we do this too in this country, but then using that to deploy forces around the areas that are identified as particular hotspots that are very likely to go so that their response time is very, very short. That's one of the things they're, they're doing well. They've, uh, they've certainly bumped up the sheer numbers of, of people and equipment that are uh, ready to fight those fires. And I think those, those two things alone have uh, helped them be somewhat successful. But, you know, to be honest, uh, Tom, there, there are a lot of the fires there like here where success is just simply uh, avoiding um, either structure loss and certainly loss of life. That's success. But most anything else as far as controlling the fire or stopping it or building a fire line around a mega fire and, and, and controlling it within the first five or six days, which used to be common when fires broke out, that, that's, um, that's not even on the, on the table, really. Mm-hmm. One more thing before we leave uh, Wildfires, and we'll, we'll take a break soon, then we'll get into the, the latest book, uh, which is The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches About Living Well in the World. Um, you, you studied some of the science here. We just talked about some of the, the, the science. Um, and uh, I'm fascinated by pyroforensic experts. So they they uh, I guess they they're brought in to determine how and where fires originate, which is of course an important thing to to know. I want you to talk a little bit about that science. Yeah, it's it, it's fascinating work. Um you know you you can have a 100,000 acre fire burn and these men and women are able to go in and very often determine uh, yes, it was a cigarette and it started right here in these 3 square feet. And they do that by knowing very well how burn patterns show up on the land. Um, fires tend to create wind ahead of them. So they can look at which way the burned leaves have been turned, know which way the fire winds were moving, and then follow that back to the ignition point. So it's a very, very uh, um, specific, uh, focused kind of work. But they have gotten really good at, at, at figuring out how most fires start, not necessarily finding out who did it. And by the way, since we're on that topic, you know, we continue to be in a situation where more than 90% of all the wildfires that start in the United States are started by humans. So there's, there's something we can control. Okay, that, that's very much within our control. It doesn't cost a whole lot of money at all to stop setting fires. It's an extraordinary statistic, and it hasn't changed for 50 years. Um, but that's something fire education and, um, you know, the arsonists aside, which is uh, arson is responsible for about 5% of the wildfires started. But outside of that, it's often an accident. You know, it was a it was a gender reveal party in California and fireworks that started one of the biggest fires that's burning out there. Um, and, and, and not that people had any sense of ill intent doing that. It was a complete accident on their part. But we need to raise the kind of consciousness in everybody to see the landscape as tinder dry and ready to burn. And then, you know, let that awareness guide our everyday behavior. Yeah, here in Utah, there's a fire that was started by target practice for, you know, that's one one way. So you said 90%, you say, and that hasn't changed yeah. uh, over time. So uh, I guess education, Smokey Bear has to do a better job. What, how do we uh, how do we do, do that education? Well, I think that's, that's true. Smokey Bear does have to do a better job. Um, 
again, acknowledging that fire does have a role on the landscape. We don't need to put them all out, which Smokey was big on saying back in the mid-20th century. But uh, I think actually to make this even part of school curriculum uh, would be very helpful. Uh, a, wild, a very pragmatic, practical wildfire school curriculum, especially for those living in the West and the arid West in particular, w- would be a great way to start to to turn this around. Um, as is always true, you know, once you get kids made aware of things, then often they can educate their their parents and their families, and and uh, you know, have a vision that that, that older adults don't. So I, I would start with that. Certainly, there are lots of opportunities to be had with public service uh, announcement efforts and and things like that. Um, so, also, finally, I would say, politicians, because they have the stage so often, they have the microphone so often, could do a good job of uh, a better job of uh, just just bringing this to people's awareness uh, whenever they have the chance to to speak to their constituents. A final question on this: We're talking with writer Gary Ferguson. Um, it, it, once these megafires get going in a particular season, um, it, uh, are they able to be successfully fought, or, or or in the end, is it just change of change of weather and colder weather and rain and snow that uh, stops it? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and to be honest, a lot of times it is the the latter uh, description you just gave. It's rain, snow, the weather changing. Um, what firefighters can sometimes do, you know, I said that they have a very difficult con- uh, time containing a megafire. They can sometimes steer it and direct it. So um, let's say if there's a, a steep cliff uh, three miles away where when the fire gets to the cliff, it would stop because it would run out of fuel. Um, they can build fire lines uh, on certain sides of it with bulldozers and other heavy equipment. They can put fire retardant around the sides. They don't want it to go or burn as quickly toward, and therefore sort of herd or, or um, you know, lead it to a certain point. But the thing that undoes them more often than not when those efforts are going well, and they often do, is these fires are so big that they're creating their own winds and fire tornadoes. Uh, this has been a big story out in California, the number of fire tornadoes. So these are like little dust devils, but they're made of fire, and the problem is those fire tornadoes lift off, and then they go where they're going to go. Maybe they go three, four, five, or six miles away to a patch of forest that has no fire on it at all. Suddenly that fire is burning. And so these firefighters are constantly, for their own safety, having to uh, keep track of what spark has flown you know, two or three miles away, started another fire there. What does that mean for where they're standing as far as whether they'll be compromised? So, um, yeah, in a lot of those difficult situations, they can try to steer it, they can try to hurt it, but ultimately it's going to be weather. Um, and if not rain and snow, at least a return to significant humidity at night, which which used to be, um, you know, more common, Tom, uh, to be honest, is, is humidity coming at night. It still tends to. But with every rise in the uh, average temperature, and this is where climate change comes in, humidity goes down significantly goes down significantly. And that one factor alone is why you see so many more hundreds of thousands of acres burn um, every year with every one or two degree rise in temperature. Well, we'll uh, our, our you know thoughts and prayers and hopes go out to the good folks on the West Coast and, uh, and uh, of course, yes. Australia as they head into their season as well. Uh, let's take a break, uh, and when we come back, uh, by the way, we're talking with Montana-based writer Gary Ferguson. His books include Land on Fire, the New Reality of Wildfire in the West. And we're going to uh, transition talk about his uh, latest book. It came out last year. It's called The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World, uh, following this break.
Thanks for uh, joining us for Access Utah. We're uh, spending the hour with writer Gary Ferguson. His books include Land on Fire. We talked about Megafire in the first half of the program. The latest book is The uh, Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. Um, you can find uh, Gary Ferguson at wildwords.net. Uh, so, uh, Gary Ferguson, I, I guess maybe to start on this one, um, what, what was your purpose? What was the impetus writing this book, Eight Master Net Lessons? Well, you know, I think it was uh, age-related, Tom, to be quite honest with you. I, I rounded the corner uh, on 60, and I found myself looking back over my shoulder at uh, some of those miles of trails you mentioned that I'd been on when we first started, uh, which are now up to about 35,000 miles of trail in various places, wild places of the world. And I wanted to just pause and look back and see, you know, what it was that has really influenced me about nature, what nature has taught me about about life in, in general. Um, I, I, it's always been my experience that being out in the natural world and, and really travel in general can, can do this. It's a for some reason, a chance to kind of move to the edge of the stage. When I'm out in the natural world, uh, suddenly the, the, the movie of me, which is damn near always playing in my head, uh, it just stops. And I'm off to the edge of the stage, and I'm looking on at something else going on, and while I'm part of it and I'm connected to it, I don't necessarily have to be in control of it, um, and I don't have to understand it only through me. And so this was an attempt to gather up the wisdom that I uh, gained thanks to my experience in nature and spending lots of time with brilliant ecologists and biologists and botanists and, and other men and women along, along the way. And I was interested in one thing in particular. First of all, what is it that makes nature able not just to survive but to thrive? This is an extraordinarily rich and productive and fecund planet. It's, it's really amazing. And sometimes the strongest communities are those that thrive right after a major disruption, like wildfire or like flood or like hurricane or things like that. So what makes it thrive? And then the second thing I was interested in is that, hey, we're nature too. We're no less the product of millions of years of evolution and fine-tuning and tweaking and to respond better to the environment we find ourselves in than is the wolf or the grizzly bear or the cheetah or the elephant. And so what does nature perhaps have to say to us that we possess as well as far as a quality of living well in the world that we've maybe lost touch with, that we can lean into? in the face of these troubled times, very much like in the face of the megafires we were talking about in the last part of the show. Yeah, we, you're right that we, we tend to, at least one strand of thinking is we, and I see this, we, we very much tend to think of ourselves as outside of nature, above nature, not in nature, not a part of it. Yeah, it, it's, it's true. And, you know, to be fair, we have 500 years of solid tradition that started with, uh, the modern scientific era that encourages that. And the, and the way that happened uh, back in the day of Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes when these people were doing their phenomenal work understanding the nature of the universe, they relied on something called subject-object thinking, which became and is still to this day the, the fundamental aspect of the so-called scientific method. And it basically means you isolate whatever you want to study, you make sure that you try to not have any influence on what you're studying because you want to just study it by itself in isolation, and you try to make sure that it's not being influenced by anything else. And you can, through that method, um, gosh, come up with w wonderful aspects of, of the nature of that particular thing. And we've used that to build technologies, to create fabulous medicine, um, lots of things. But the fact is, it is a very, very small piece of the puzzle. Um, the reality is we are connected in ways that are continuing to this day to blow the minds of most scientists. You can't isolate things. You can isolate them to study, but don't go away thinking that that isolation is reality. And, and really, that was such a popular um, explosion of a way of a way to think that it soon became common in education systems, government systems, and so that today our our impulse to think of ourselves as outside 
the rest of the world and disconnected from nature and often disconnected from each other um, is, is profound. We don't even see it. It's the water we swim in. The other thing I'd say about subject-object thinking, while it, again, is useful as an investigative tool, um, when you start thinking of the world in general as subjects and objects, first, it's a very lonely place because suddenly I'm just one object in a wild and woolly universe of isolated objects. But secondly, it opens up everything to being objectified, including entire other groups of people. So whether it's women, whether it's people of color, um, that's that kind of prejudice, that kind of dismissal, that kind of superiority is only possible when we're thinking of ourselves as separate and above the rest of life on Earth. So it's had amazing repercussions to, to hold fast to that way of thinking. And it changes really uh, at the point we start seeing it. I want to get into at least some of these eight master lessons. Uh, before that, I want to uh, have you tell a couple of stories that, uh, <laughs> that I loved in the book. Uh, so you grew up in Indiana, right? I did. Yes, I did. Uh, and you, um, you you say that this this blew me away. It doesn't take much, right? You you say you were fascinated by the garden. It was this out back of your home? You you say two the size of two couches put together. Yeah, that's right. We lived in a very small house with a very small yard and a very small garden. But and you know, I think a lot of your listeners could probably remember similar experiences of, of theirs. You know, when you're a kid, you go out and uh, you're looking at a flower, maybe drawn to it by its its beautiful color. Who knows? And then suddenly, a big bumblebee floats into your vision and lands on the flower, and that sets off a, a kind of a cascade of curiosity and engagement and. Uh, Ultimately, I would say a sense of kinship um, that kids feel. Like, I, I don't know what's going on, but this is all part of me and my world, and I can't wait to see what happens next. And, and we really all continue to have that capacity for curiosity and sense of wonder in the world, uh, especially in the natural world. But, but it gets covered over with um, lots of uh, ruminations and anxieties and and with separation thinking, which isn't something that uh, most kids um, have to have to deal with, that that comes later in life. But we, uh, a lot of us, tend to lose that along the way. What what happens? Well, I, I think that it's it's sort of an out of sight, out of mind. And again, that out of sight, out of mind perspective is only possible when you believe that things are separated, when you're isolated. When I'm not nature. That's the only perspective that makes it possible for me to think, um, never think of the tree, never think of uh, the wolf, never think of uh, the vegetative community that's uh, in my city. Uh, that isolation thinking is, is really a problem. What the good news is, though, is there is so much evidence now, especially over the last 10 years with wonderful scientific studies, that the slightest bit of going out into the natural world is a way to um, regain that. Um, what, what seems to happen, uh, at least from a physiological standpoint, even walking under trees in a park, um, we've, we've documented now that cortisol levels in your brain drop quite dramatically, sometimes by 20 and 25%. Your blood pressure tends to lower. Your heart rate tends to drop. And so from that more calmed, peaceful place, you know, that sense of wonder and mystery and connection has a better chance of finding you as opposed to when we're amped up and we're worried and we're concerned. And, and my gosh, who isn't that uh, on many days right now with, with all that's going on? But we need to find a way to just simply calm ourselves and stop. And being out in even the slightest bit of nature can help a great deal. Especially during these times, I would imagine we're we're all we all have that little bit of stress at least from from the pandemic, right? Oh yeah, I mean, and and not only do we have the stress of, gosh, are we going to get ill? But we've we've actually been asked, and and I think rightly, intelligently so, to keep our distance from each other. And humans are arguably the, or certainly among the most social mammals on planet Earth. We have succeeded, most evolutionary biologists would argue, because we're so good at cooperating with each other. We're so good at being with each other. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, we haven't taken up arms against those who aren't like us lots and lots of times. But 
one of our great superpowers is our ability to be together. So just the act of walking down the street and knowing that, oh, there's somebody, I have to be six feet away from them, that probably has physiological and stress responses in the body um, that are quite profound. So all the more reason to, you know, go out and spend a little bit of time in the garden or uh, at the city park at the end of the street. Um, whatever you can do to just simply breathe and um, put down some of these very real and very disturbing um, things we're living through right now. I want to go to a break. Before we go to break, I want to talk about lesson number one. I want to get into some of these, of course, eight master lessons. Lesson number one, mystery. Wisdom begins when we embrace all that we don't know. I was fascinated in this chapter. Uh, you talk about Einstein, uh, of course, famously, you know, explored uh, the, the world, world of the mind, um, you know, the cosmos. But apparently when he got stuck, he would go out, uh, I guess, into this little forest near his office. Yeah, uh, the the Institute Woods on the Princeton University campus, he would go out to that forest, look around at the woods, um, engage his intellect, if you will, uh, in trying to figure out what all was going on in that woods. He knew he couldn't do it. In fact, we can't even come close to doing it today. We barely understand what's going on as far as the connections in a square yard of dirt, let alone in a forest. But he would intentionally spin himself up and essentially blow his mind by trying to figure out all the connections that were going on. And he said that in the wake of that overwhelming his intellect, he was in a calm, creative place, almost as if he was from a, in a higher position. And from there could see solutions to the problems he was trying to figure out back in the physics lab. So often from that simple yielding or surrendering to the complexity of the natural world, he was able to go back and figure out his problem, uh, the, the solutions to his problem. And, and it's also worth noting, Einstein would always tell his students, if you have a choice between knowledge and mystery, always choose mystery. He said it was the source of all art and all science. And um, that's a perspective that I don't think many of us are familiar with today. Uh, so the, the the mystery, uh, I guess, part of its perspective, I guess, right? But 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 it's uh, it's engaging different part of our brain, which can then help us with with our other problems. Yeah, and I think it is a, a sort of surrendering to the moment and all that you don't know, and that's really what Einstein was doing: is surrendering to all that he don't doesn't know, and all he couldn't know. And this is what's being asked of us too. And what happens when you do? It seems like sort of I'm awful because we're giving up control. If we don't know something, how can we control it? But the fact of the matter is what that does is when you give up the need to control anything at the moment is it opens you up to the potential uh, of, uh, of a given moment. And, and if you look at nature, it, certainly hardwired into nature are a lot of regular routines. You know, seeds grow into sprouts, produce fruit in a certain cycle, and, and on and on and on. But the, the real brilliance of nature is its ability to improvise and react to changing conditions in the environment moment by moment. And I think what Einstein might suggest is that if you're friendly with mystery, then you can really be in the moment. You can really intuit what needs to happen given what's going on in your surroundings, what's actually going on in your surroundings, as opposed to spending lots of time, um, you know, obsessed with what may happen next year, uh, lost in regret about something you did wrong last year. Uh, mystery means being in the moment and being ready to improvise and having the trust in yourself that you do have the intuitive capacity you need to make the right decision if you're paying attention. Let's take another break, come back with our last segment. We're spending the hour with writer Gary Ferguson. His latest book is The Eight Master Lessons of Nature. I will have more following this break.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Gary Ferguson. Uh, he's based in Montana. You can find him at wildwords.net. And his latest book is The Eight Master Lessons of Nature. That's what we're talking about right now. We talked about uh, megafires in the first part of the program. Uh, so, Gary Ferguson, we won't have uh, time to cover all of the eight uh, lessons uh, as people have to buy the book, right, and, and, and read it. Uh, but, yeah. um, <laughs> I guess so. Um, uh, I wanted to make sure that we uh, talked about uh, lesson number seven. After disaster and disruption, nature teaches us the fine art of rising again. Um, maybe encapsulate this for us. What, what, what's the, the biggest thing you would say about this one? Well, you know, let's let's turn back to that subject we started with, and that's wildfire. Uh, in general, nature is able to withstand big disruption, and and disruption, by the way, is is a way of life. In fact, some evolutionary um, geneticists and biologists think that it was the reaction to big disruptions that strengthened most life on Earth and made it as resilient as it is. So, disruption is not always bad, but in order to withstand disruption of, say, a wildfire first thing you want to do is to be able to withstand the real blunt force of the event, of the trauma. So if you're a ponderosa pine, you will have over many, many years developed very thick bark that's resilient and uh, resistant to uh, uh, the heat of the fire burning through. You might also drop your lower branches so that if a fire comes through, um, it won't ladder climb, basically, into the top of the tree and kill the tree. If you're a lodgepole pine, you're going to develop some of your cones so that they'll only open in the presence of fire and drop the seeds to the ground in the ashes and be in that nutrient-rich medium so that they can sprout as soon as possible, just months later. So it's a way to withstand the real intense blunt force of the trauma. The second thing you have to do is you have to make sure that the things that were important uh, to life, as you knew it before the disruption, are, are protected and are still present. So in the case of the fire, you've got to make sure that there are still microorganisms in the soil that can break down the minerals and make them available to the plants. You have to make sure that there are pollinators, bees and flies uh, nearby that can pollinate the first plants and, and help the spread of the community. And so, you know, this is very metaphorical, I realize, but there are some really, um, I think, valuable things to be gained from us as individuals and even as groups and families asking ourselves this question. What, what is it that is our strength that will allow us or allow me to withstand whatever it is that I'm about to go through or I'm going through? And then what is it that I really need? What is it that keeps me sane? What is it that makes me able to continue to um, live fully and not be completely consumed and freaked out by the, the danger and the risk of what's going on around me? Um, I think that's a very valuable set of questions for people to be able to ask, perhaps especially this year with as much stress as we've got in, uh, in our daily lives. Well, we reach, have reached the end of our uh, our time. We did, we have a commentary at the end of the program here, so we'll make way for that. But uh, uh, the eight master lessons of nature, well worth the read. Uh, Gary Ferguson uh, is the writer. You can find him at wildwords.net and a previous book, uh, Land on Fire, about uh, uh, about wildfires. Gary Ferguson, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, Tom, I just wanted to say really quickly, I'm doing some interesting work related to your questions uh, with my wife, who's a social scientist, Dr. Mary Claire, uh, at fullycology.com, trying to break down the walls between the human and the natural world. And I think a lot of what we talked about uh, would be fleshed out there maybe in an interesting way for your listeners. Fullycology.com. Yes, indeed. Okay. All right. We'll direct our listeners there as well. Oh, well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Be well. Uh, you you as well. Uh, we now, uh, at the end of the program here, turn to uh, a commentary uh, from uh, Kathy Snyder. My grandchildren's father, my son, Captain Brian S. Freeman, was not a loser nor a sucker. He was an honorable man and a national hero. He attended Washington State University Pullman and joined Army ROTC. After two years of hard work, he was offered a two-year scholarship or he could accept an appointment to West Point. He chose West Point and graduated in May 1999. Brian loved the Army and lived his life by the codes duty, honor, country, and a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. 
concepts that are sorely lacking today at the national level in our country. Brian's Army career was spent as a tank commander. He cared for and supported the young men serving under him. He was known for hosting Thanksgiving dinners for those who had no nearby family. In 2002, he visited us in Utah for a family reunion and to attend the first Olympic women's bobsled competition. He found a new passion and pursued joining the Army World Class Athlete Program. He competed first in skeleton, then as a pusher in bobsled. Alas, he was not going to be an Olympian, so at the end of his five years, he separated from the Army and became part of the inactive reserves. He had found a new love, Charlotte, and they married in 2004. Their first child, Gunner, was born. In September of 2005, he was called back to the Army. His only request was that his report date be delayed so that he could be home for the birth of his second child, Ingrid. Brian became a civil affairs officer working with the governor of the province of Karbala. While he did not support the war, he served with honor. He told us that if he had to go, he would try to help the Iraqis. He explored bee business opportunities and small-scale water filtration in that effort. His greatest achievement was helping a young boy receive life-saving heart surgery in the United States. The last photo taken of him was with Ali's father, Abdul, when notice was received that everything was in place for the surgery to be formed in New York. Brian was one of four soldiers captured and executed as part of the January 20, 2000 raid on the Karbala government compound. This is not the story of a sucker, a loser, but the story of a brave, honorable, loving man who served his country and family with all his heart. Unfortunately, I have learned a sad lesson from his legacy. I and my family are part of the military story that this country only wants to acknowledge on Memorial Day. Gold Star families make Americans uncomfortable. We're not asked to stand at sporting events. Our president disparages us every time he denigrates military service. We stand tall. We believe in duty, honor, country. That's a commentary from Northern Utah resident Kathy Snyder. A version of this commentary uh, has appeared in the Logan Herald Journal and the Salt Lake Tribune. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today.